Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 5, issue 244. You can, as you know, and as many of you do, play along with the podcast. And we have a few shows left in volume 5, our fifth year. Those coming up in the immediate future include Amnesia, The Dark Descent, following that Fallout, New Vegas... Then it's back to the days of the Dreamcast and uh, Metropolis Street Racer. Following that, it's Shiny's MDK. And then we return once again to Zelda for Phantom Hourglass, which will be the last Zelda of this volume. But don't worry, we'll be back with the rest of the series in Volume 6, all being well. Head to canorince.com for all the stuff, the articles, the features, the reviews. We have a recent review up there of Thumper by uh, Ryan here. Uh, the uh, hot to trot, uh, well, you know, it's a few weeks ago now, but uh, it's still cool, uh, rhythm horror game on PS4 and PSVR and PC uh, and other things like that. That's uh, an unusually contemporaneous review, but uh, we have lots of other interesting stuff on there. We also have our friendly and intelligent forum and our Facebook page and our YouTube channel are always worth checking in on as well. And if you enjoy what we do, even if you don't engage with all that stuff, you still get uh, sort of three hours of podcast every week. If you also download Sound of Play, our video games music show, and you can contribute to the inordinate amount of time that we spend producing these shows for you. Uh, if you wish to contribute financially, we have a Patreon. Uh, every bit of content we release will remain free to all, regardless of whether people donate, whether you wish to donate, whether you can or not. It doesn't matter. However, if you do want to contribute a dollar or whatever, a month, then uh, we'll receive that all too gratefully. Uh, you can also buy T-shirts and bags, which are very cool. Uh, sales are booming. If I say that, maybe they will boom. I don't know. Uh, that's how it works, isn't it? I'm thinking. I'm thinking like Mallow in his Mallow Mart and his his consumerist nightmare. Uh, shop, shop, shop at spreadshirt.co.uk slash rinse buy yourself a nifty Cana rinse or sound of play t-shirt or bag as i say do subscribe rate and review where you can anywhere on the internet really but particularly on the places that the podcasts are available uh, such as itunes pocket cast stitcher tune in there are others based on rss feeds you can find us so joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 244, and I apologise, by the way, if I opened the Broken Sword Shadow of the Templars uh, podcast with the incorrect issue number. It's finally happening. The, the brain cells are finally fading and the years are catching up. I think I said 242 on that one. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. Live from a hotel room in Poland where he lives his secret double life. Yep. We have... Now, a permanent addition to the Cane and Rinse crew, so she doesn't get her final top billing. Now featuring Leah Haydu. That's so cool. Like, I mean, I, I, lost the, I lost the bottom slot, but I got some other yeah. stuff. And now with 100% better sound quality. So, um, yes. yeah. Welcome aboard. Uh, and, Thank you. Uh, officially. And, yeah, well done on getting a, a, a nice new mic. So Leah should sound fresher from now on, and she'll be with us all throughout the foreseeable future and uh, popping up regularly on the podcast throughout Volume 6 and hopefully beyond. Can't get rid of me now. <laughs> The same sadly can't be said 
for the departing Ryan Heyman. That's right. Should I should I fill people in on this? Um, well, yeah. I mean, it's it. You know, with uh, with the current climate and all that, you should probably give full disclosure given what we're about to talk about. <laughs> yes, that is uh, that is a good point. Um, I am going to be off mic for a little while as. Um, I'm going to be starting up a new job doing some sort of uh, consumer research over at Nintendo, uh, which is appropriate for this issue. I hope I don't make any yeah. enemies with any negative things that I have to say um, in, in this particular issue. Uh, at my but equally, we know employer. you'll maintain. Mm-hmm. We know that you'll maintain uh, editorial independence, and you won't be saying yes. uh, uh, unrealistically or, or, or falsely positive things about Twilight Princess based on your newfound position at Nintendo Corp. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I, I start there very soon. And so kind of as soon as that happens, I'm going to, uh, they're a little protective over, you know, um, their online, the way that the employees represent themselves online. And so I'm going to have to be, um, you know, cutting down on the podcast appearances as far as the kind of more editorial or, um, or review oriented type stuff uh, and also written features on the website. Although I should still be able to record for sound of play and fingers crossed, um, put things on the YouTube channel. So if people, um, if people miss good old Ryan, then I should still be hanging (laughs) around in those other outlets. And uh, I would very much like to (laughs) return to uh, Kane and Rinse recordings as, uh, as soon as I can, but you know, it's kind of, um, at this point, kind of top priority is uh, is yeah. making some money. <laughs> this is not an opportunity that can be uh, sniffed at. Yes. So uh, congratulations from everyone at Cana Rinse and the entire listening community, I'm sure, will join us in that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, there it is. Now, our history is with The Legend of Zelda, Twilight Princess. Let's start over there in the, uh, in the red light district with Josh. <laughs> Um, so Twilight Princess, um, as I've mentioned in some of the earlier issues of this series, um, Twilight Princess was actually my first Zelda game, and the reason I've gone on to play all the rest of them. Um, so yeah, I, I bought a Wii, um, the Wii was my very first Nintendo console, and, um, Twilight Princess was one of the very first games I bought for it. Um, so yes, so unfortunately, my um, first experience of this game isn't with the what some would consider the the, the true experience of Twilight Princess, um, the GameCube version. My first experience is with the uh, Wii version, where the entire world has been flipped round, um, so Near that uh, yeah. so that Link's uh, sword is in his right hand. But um, also, I've gone on to play the HD release that came out on Wii U recently. Was that confusing going uh, playing it effectively on mirror mode, or had enough time passed? Enough time had passed where um, it, it wasn't a huge factor. There, there are obviously there are bits that stick out in my memory quite strongly, but um, honestly, the uh, the uh, the mirroring wasn't an issue. Uh, cool, Leah. How about you? Wii, GameCube, Wii U. It, it, while it was not my first Zelda game, I my experience was pretty similar to uh, to Josh's. Actually, I. Um, 
I bought a Wii. I want to say that this was probably, aside from um, Wii Sports, you know, which came with the console, I think that this was my first Wii game. Uh, I had a difficult time actually getting a Wii console because when I did get one, it was right in the middle of all the the craze for it and, you know, with people lining up everywhere. And uh, I only actually ended up getting a Wii because one of my uh, friends had won a lottery from, I believe, Amazon, not to actually get the console, but to get a chance to buy a console. So by that time, he had already found a console, so he gave me his chance to buy one, and I uh, that was how I finally ended up getting mine. Um, so I played Twilight Princess pretty much right when it came out, uh, and I did play the Wii version, which... At the time, I had some issues with it, which I'll go into more detail about in a little bit. But um, I did recently play the uh, my, my most recent over the past couple of weeks playthrough has been the the Wii U version, um, which I actually liked quite a bit. So um, very good. I did not have any particular issues with any mirroring or anything. I for me, it had been a while. So uh. yeah, yes, it has been uh, pretty much a decade. Ryan, how about you? Uh, yeah, similar story. I bought the Wii version originally and uh, played that through uh, to completion back on the Wii and have recently, again, I guess recently, within the last year, picked up the Wii U remake as well. Okay, so uh, I, uh, being the the hipster here, I played the GameCube version. <clears throat> um, and that was actually really because I didn't have a Wii until uh, just after Christmas. It was a Christmas present from my girlfriend. They were sold out everywhere just before Christmas, so I had to wait until the gap between Christmas and the New Year to get my Wii. Uh, and even then, it took a little while longer to get uh, to get rigged up with decent uh, visual out cables and, and all that sort of thing. So I bought uh, the GameCube version on the day of release, which was just uh, a week or so after the Wii version, I think, which launched with the console. And uh, yeah, and I played it uh, thoroughly during that holiday season period, 2006 to uh, late 2006 to early 2007. And it actually... Um, so I had my Wii, you know, while I was still playing the GameCube version. Um, I may have even been... No, I wouldn't have been playing it through the Wii because of those audio, the, the visual issues I mentioned. So I played the whole thing on my GameCube. And then uh, when the HD version was announced, uh, my mum actually pre-ordered it for me for last Christmas based on my Amazon wish list. She didn't just know. Um, and so that came out in March and uh, that was when she gave it to me. And then it's been waiting to be played until we got to this point in the, our series of podcasts. And I played it over the last few weeks, played about 40 odd hours and finished it yesterday. Uh, yeah, so I've played it twice, once, once on GameCube, once in HD, never with motion controls. Whether that alters my feelings about the game, who knows? Uh, so, of course, Nintendo EAD made this game, and the director is named as A.G. Anima again, with Miyamoto producing. Uh, the art director is Satoru Takizawa, uh, and chief illustrator Yusuke Nakano. Now, the um, the lead character, designer, and animator is one Keisuke Nishimori. Who, uh, that was his first game as, as the lead in that sort of a role following doing some non-player character work in Super Mario Sunshine. Uh, Bowser Jr., I think, was his. And Wind Waker, he did the grandmother and various other characters in there. 
Uh, and I also want to credit the NPC designer because I think they're very striking. And uh, that is Satomi Asukawa. And she was inspired by uh, the sort of the, the bright colours and oddness of Disney's Alice in Wonderland cartoon, the 1951 version of Lewis Carroll's book, obviously. Um, and one of her previous works is something that doesn't sit so well with me. And that is the Piantas from Super Mario Sunshine, which may have been quite appealing in a, in another game. But for me... As we discussed on the Super Mario Sunshine podcast, they never quite fit with the with the whole Mushroom Kingdom thing for me. I realise that's because they were on holiday in the land of the Piantas. So, you know, uh, composers Toru Minigishi, Asuka Ota, and there's uh, plenty of tunes there from Koji Kondo as well from previous games. And... Yes, it was released in December uh, on December 2006 on both consoles. As I say, I think there might have been a week gap or, or something. Or maybe it was even the same day. I don't remember. But I just know that I didn't have a Wii day one or even week one. Uh, most of the copies that Nintendo sent out for review were understandably the Wii version because they were pushing their new console and its uh, unusual uh, unique control solution so there were 16 reviews of the GameCube version presumably in uh, magazines that were still covering the previous gen such as it was um, and it averaged 95% in there came very close to averaging that on the Wii as well with uh, even with 84 reviews the Wii U version uh, obviously 10 years later in HD has reviewed uh, with an average of 85.98% so uh, whether that's because you know overall opinions of the game have dropped or whether it's simply because 10 years have passed and it's a 10 year old game well perhaps we'll discuss uh, and the game has sold as far as we know just under 10 million copies across all formats although of course we don't know how many digital copies of Twilight Princess HD uh, have been sold. So I'm going to say that that almost certainly has pushed it, even with the Wii U's ailing fortunes, probably pushed it to the 10 million mark overall, which I think is several million more than Wind Waker managed in total. I could... Um memory serves but it's a while since we did that podcast uh, so the game uses the wind waker engine and in fact was originally conceived as a sort of a more of a direct sequel to wind waker uh, but when it was unveiled at e3 2004 with a full fully orchestrated announcement it uh, it got a standing ovation uh, and according to miyamoto the change in style to the slightly more uh, i don't know if realistic's the right word but um or mature I don't, I don't know what the right right phrase is but uh, slightly more representational characters and a less cartoony art style should we say was for a combination of reasons um partly fan feedback partly the tone of the story not fitting the cartoony visuals according to Miyamoto but I suspect one of the chief ones was that Wind Waker underperformed uh, commercially we'll offer a spoiler warning here because we should but Again, it's a Zelda game. I don't know what you think happens in these by now. But if you get to the end, um, you may have... you may have uh, Familiar themes may occur. Um, yeah. Uh, so, this scenario and setting for this game, uh, this takes place on the Hero is Successful post-Ocarina of Time timeline uh, between Majora's Mask and Four Swords Adventures, apparently... Uh, so yeah, let's talk about this link and the general uh, the the look and the feel and the setup of this Hyrule uh, 
anything to say on this, Josh? Um, so when when I originally played it, um, I I was really sold on this link and this world that they created. Um, I think on this playthrough. Um, and having played all the other Zeldas, I think um, when I compare this Link to the one found in Wind Waker, um, this guy's a, a bit more stiff and um, lacking the same kind of uh, breadth of personality that the uh, Wind Waker Link displays on his face and through his animations and Definitely, what have you. Definitely, yeah, for sure. But... Um, Having said that, I think um, you know that there are some characters in the the first village that you're at and and that you meet later on that are really um, uh, memorable and inviting and and warm. Um, and I I think Hyrule itself in in this game has, especially on this revisit on the Wii U version, I I really do think it's a strong open world. Um, uh, maybe not. I, I don't think it's quite as um, intricately packed with details and little things that you can find, like um, a link to the past was for me. But they they sell a sense of scale um, in this open world um, Hyrule that um, I don't think um, uh, Majora's Mask or Ocarina of Time did for me. And with Wind Waker, while the ocean was vast, the islands were kind of just these separate little parts that you explored through had your fun but then went off into the vast ocean again whereas where, where <coughs> sorry whereas with this they they do create this this landscape that kind of um, bleeds into uh, new environments very organically. I, I say organically for a Zelda game. They bleed into each other quite Suddenly, organically. If organically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, um, I think there is a lot to love here in in the world that they create. Leah, do you feel similarly? I do, particularly about uh, about Link. Um, I, I think that there are a number of really interesting characters, but I don't think that Link in this particular scenario is really one of them. It's not mm. that he's badly drawn or badly written or anything like that. He's just kind of... I, I hesitate to say expressionless because that kind of makes him seem like he's dull and just not... He just... He's... He's very easy to imprint yourself upon, I suppose, in, in the manner of you're supposed to be able to imprint yourself on many heroes or primary characters in, in these kinds of mm -hmm. games. And he doesn't really do anything emotionally strong one way or the other for most of the game. Um, and it's it's hard for me to say whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, because it's just it's not really a thing at all. Hyrule itself is... is very well represented. I do agree with that as well. Um, something that I kind of uh, I kind of would have compared this to is one of the large complaints that I've heard when people even have complaints about Ocarina of Time is that Hyrule Field is really huge and really expansive and there's nothing in it. So this kind of almost is what that should have been or what it could have been if if Ocarina of Time was remade today, then it might be a little bit more like this. Now, I'm not saying this is necessarily packed with things on every single square inch, but there feels like there's a lot more to do to me. Uh, it doesn't really feel like you're running through large patches of nothing along your way. It, it, it tends to feel like there's more of a filled out world there. 
Ryan, how do you feel about this link and this Hyrule? I, I've had a really kind of weird experience as I've been, uh, as I played this game originally as a, you know, a much younger individual who I believe at the time hadn't really like come around to fully embracing Wind Waker's art style to the same degree that I love it now, you know, just being young. (laughs) Um, And so I was at the time, I think I was like, yeah, cool. A more kind of like grown up looking Zelda game looks like Ocarina of Time again. I'm all on board for this. And then I kind of fell out of favor with the aesthetic of Twilight Princess because as the Twilight Princess designs became prominent in um, in a bunch of other kind of crossover games like Super Smash Brothers and Hyrule Warriors, it led to a certain homogenization of the mm-hmm. look as the Twilight Princess characters compared against more colorful characters like you would find in the Smash Bros are really kind of boring designs. Um, but as I came back to my recent playthrough on the Wii U version, expecting to find that, okay, this is kind of the boring design one that, you know, just looks as generic as I could ever imagine it being, like, I had a greater appreciation for these character designs in the context of the game itself. I think when they're not playing against something that's a lot more... Um, it, a lot more I guess, fantastically designed in in a sense to like evoke fantasy not a, not a not a value judgment there um in that use of the word but i think when they're playing off of each other and staying consistent to the aesthetic that the entire world represents like it really holds together a lot better than i remembered after all of these years of kind of uh, uh growing negative towards these characters and hmm. it reminded me as i was playing the entire game of uh of dark souls in a lot of ways because like just the way that the environments were designed in particular the type of texturing that you would see inside the caves and the temples and the elaborate castles and everything and uh I mean, it, it kind of served one purpose, kind of made me wish that I was playing Dark Souls instead, especially with the uh, combat. But um, but I, I do, I did really, really warm up to the uh, the look of um, of this particular game, and, and especially how creative a lot of the uh, Twilight Realm stuff was, in that they brought back that kind of original idea of a like digital threat to this um, otherwise early mechanical Mm. world, which was, you know, goes back to the very, very first Zelda, um, or at least the uh, the conceptual stages of the very first Zelda, uh, which really comes through here. And as far as the supporting cast goes, I think some of it is brilliant, like some of the very best designs of any of the Zelda games. Like Midna, I think, is a wonderful character and has just a fantastic design. That's just a killer design, whether in the imp form or in the more kind of like humanoid form um just really kind of lovingly designed there i love those ghosts that have like their faces projected a few feet in front of their heads yeah and absolutely stunning of, yeah yeah and a lot of the npcs even have mm. a surprising amount of uh textural detail on their clothing and yeah everybody feels like really individually designed in the way that even past zelda games didn't really impart which is really um really quite stunning and a lot of the enemies as well like have a lot of uh um are are carrying 
baggies like you would expect them to. Like that's where they would put their rations as they're out in the field. Like everybody just seems really, um, really marvelously designed. And so I'm, uh, I, I think that some of the artistic design of the NPCs is inconsistent as far as like, do I appreciate looking at them all the time? Like, I think some of the faces are a little odd and don't necessarily jive well with uh, Link and Zelda's more naturalistic look, but um, that's kind of on a case-by-case thing. And I think those are the minority of the people that I would run against. I think most of it looks pretty fantastic. I think that's uh, I think that sort of um, having the the sort of some of the NPCs looking sort of strikingly I don't know ugly almost uh, or you know unconventionally attractive shall we say uh, compared to the sort of elfin uh, androgynous beauty of of Link and and, and Zelda is. Uh, is sort of a legacy thing because I think from from the older games they they had to do that to kind of make them you know with with fewer pixels kind of make them stand out and I think it's kind of come it's th- that sort of difference has been amplified through from the from the eight and sixteen bit sprites through the early polygon era and now I think like I totally get what you mean but I but I really like like I love the guy in the village whose moustache is like. 18 inches apart his left <laughs> and his right thing uh, a bit of moustache and um, and as you say yeah those those guys with the masks and Mallow who looks like a little baby but he's a capitalist child <laughs> businessman um, and all that stuff like and, and yeah I think the HD version in particular although I had no issues whatsoever playing the original standard definition version back in 2006 playing it now after getting more u- used to having more pixels playing it in a much higher resolution allows a lot of those details to pop up and I think this, mm. there is a, a, I was watching the end sequence yesterday and um, like, I think it really shows off some of the areas uh, really nicely where, you know, like Zora's domain where you suddenly notice there's mm. like tons yes. of trilobites and things in the walls and, um, and all that sort of thing. Now, I remember thinking in 2006, it was a, like, it was a sort of state of the art, beautiful game, but that's, I'm talking about an end of generation GameCube game. Mm. So kind of playing an HD remake of this now we'll talk more about it separately but I think there are things which have aged about it better than others but one of the things for me that has really uh, stayed strong and is one of it's one of my favorites in the series for all the stuff we're talking about the actual design like the fact that Hyrule Town is a bustling place mm, full of multicolored yeah. people um you know and and the fact that the I don't know if there are more people in the uh, in in Hyrule Town in the, in the Wii U version it feels like there are but mm. uh, but you know you've got the little busking band and all that sort of thing and, and they and react even to you as well them, like they're they like do, real yeah. people which you didn't really get mm. in the Ocarina and yeah that's that's what I was that's what I was thinking of the, the this is perhaps the first game where and and you know I know a lot of people out there kind of make uh, maybe they have a better am- imagination than I so they will have made relationships in their head with characters like even going back as far as uh Sahasrala or whatever in the first game um I find it difficult to kind of expand on those characters but here um there is just a bit more writing and stuff maybe not compared to Wind Waker because Wind Waker was obviously the start of this where the NPCs were actually becoming more than just you know uh text repeating um, triggers for for you know moving on in the world kind of thing. So, but yeah, I I, I really like the, the the look and feel of this world, and I don't I don't find it kind of overly generic or vanilla at mm. all. I think it's very much its own thing. I mean, it, I think there are inspirations of Eco. I think Eco's an inspiration. Mm, Shadow yeah. of the Colossus in Absolutely, places. Absolutely, yeah. I think Lord, the Lord of the Rings movies, having been recent at the time, and I think there are some enormous parallels between this and Akami. But Akami only came out eight 
eight months before so how much of an influence it can have been but even right down to certain mechanics and the way certain uh, things work and obviously the wolf thing which we're coming to um, and the overall ease the lack of challenge of the game uh, it all seems inc- it feels incredibly familiar and obviously Akami was based on a 3D Zelda template and I think is a incredibly wonderful game in its own right but um, I know for some people and we're hearing in our correspondence some people say oh Akami coming, for, coming first kind of spoilt this one a little bit for them in some ways but actually I, I think they're both um you know both in their own right worthy worthy of playing yeah if i could in particular draw attention to and i wish i had the personnel who uh who were in charge of this in particular um because usually this is somebody separate from an art designer but uh, and i already kind of made reference to this but the um yeah just the the clothing and armor design throughout the game is really top-notch and yeah. um, I, I love seeing all the details on Ganondorf's armor and how like how adorned he is with jewels and crowns and uh, and I love the uh, oh I'm forgetting the name of the uh, dark nuts would they be in this one as well the the giant Probably. armored knights that you break apart and their armor flies off and they have like a separate layer underneath and uh, I love Link's like Zora armor and his uh, whatever rupee eating armor the ones. Because like Magic previously, yeah. yeah, previously they had just been uh, like retextures, like recolors of the uh, the original um, tunics, and so it's just it's so cool to see so much detail and attention paid to the costuming, and it reminded yeah. me of like uh, like Bram Stoker's Dracula, the the 1990s film composed or written or uh, sorry directed by Francis Ford Coppola in that mm. just like really lavish costume design can almost get lost in the world unless you're really paying attention to it. But then when you sit down and think like somebody had to stitch all of these costumes together, not literally in this case, but um, to, to individually design every little piece of clothing and armor that's being worn by these characters, it's uh, there, there's really a lot of work that went into um that went into clothing everybody and it really shows i was afraid coming back to the hd version after having had such a gap in between that and the the original wii version that i was going to find that it had not aged very well visually partially because of the more realistic or whatever you want to call it uh art style uh sometimes that doesn't age as well because it's going off technology that was very new at the time and it looked great then but i was very pleasantly surprised with how well i thought it came off in the hd version uh i just i thought it looked great i really like the uh the twilight effects in particular i thought looked just stunning still uh and uh i that i thought that was a really really strong feature that i wasn't actually expecting I, I think for me the grounded um, aesthetic of most of the game is needed for the uh, Twilight sections of the game because those sections need to feel as alien and odd and uncomfortable as they are and I think that's only really accomplished because um, the real world, as it as it were, um, is much more kind of... Um, standard fantasy and i don't say that um in a negative way i think that was the absolutely the right decision because then when you start introducing characters like zant and midna and um, all of the twilight uh, monsters that come out of that world 
they're just so much more striking when you've uh, had the kind of standard um, fantasy landscape up, up until then. The, the one design that always sticks out in my memory, and um, it's a combination of the visual and the sound design, are the bird creatures mm. in the Twilight Realm. They have this weird, like, siren... Not not really a siren, but like a foghorn noise that they produce. Honking, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as they approach you. And they have this weird, like, horn-shaped face as well that's kind of pulsating. It's such a, you know... A, it's so different from any other monster that you you normally encounter in a in a Zelda game. It's so alien, and it feels like it should be in a a sci-fi game or something like that. That's how um, just how much it contrasts with the the rest of what you've seen. Um, yeah. But I, I love it because of that. The way that some of those things move too is just completely different between the worlds. Like what I'm thinking of in particular are those, um, I believe they're called the Twilight Messengers, the ones where you have to kill the last two at the same time and they open up the portals mm, to yeah, travel yeah. around. They have those tendrils and a lot of the bosses have some kind of similar odd, odd movements or unusual movements and just the way that they kind of flow around like their shadows is so different from how like anything in the the quote unquote normal world mm. moves a- and it's just it it's unsettling in a way and it's supposed to be so i i think it pulls that off pretty well yeah i think that animation is tremendous um yeah and uh i think i, I like all the the design of all the all the twilight uh, twilight creatures and and yeah zant's armor is a, is a highlight for me as well and zant once once the the helmet is removed as well but i love zant, zant's helmet is genuine genuinely freaky um and while i think overall the game doesn't um quite creep me out as much as majora's mask has the capacity to do um it's still it's again it's uh, for me the, the feeling is hardly kind of you know just sort of utterly safe generic fantasy it's definitely got some some darkness and some some depth to it um that's partly in the storytelling and, and partly in the visual storytelling uh, and obviously a huge part of that is midna in, in both senses um she speaks in a in a sort of odd cut up way um which it turns out is actually english uh, being spoken by uh, the voice artist akiko komoto who is um, also plays some of the characters in uh, female characters in street fighter games and she's uh, she's an anime voice artist as well um and yes you can just about catch catch little snatches but if it if it, it if it's uncut if if midna's dialogue is put back together it is just her saying what she's saying in the speech bubbles but in english um but it has a nice you know it has a nice tone to it and a sort of echoiness and um again you know there is there's there's streamlining uh, as as we talked about quite a lot with with wind waker there's quite a bit of streamlining gone into the the hd remake it's not just a straight you know up resing and, and out the door um perhaps there are fewer changes than there were to wind waker uh, for which there were a lot, but um, things as you don't actually need to kind of talk to Midna as much to to do anything to change into a wolf and stuff like that. But but you still, I still feel like you spend a lot of time with her and you get to know her. And um, we were talking about after Minish Cap our relationship with with our hat and how it's a little bit sad at the end when you had to say goodbye to the old sage um, Eslo. And uh, yeah, and this this time even more so I felt because rather than with uh, perhaps sometimes with with uh, 
Tattle and uh, and Navi, where you've actually got a little bit, you know, irritated by their presence at times. Um, I was always happy to hear from Midna. She's sassy. I like that. <laughs> Definitely yeah. sassy. <laughs> I think for me, Midna is a, a big success in mm. this game. Um, she's easily my favourite um, support character in the series. I, I just think. If I, you know, Zelda's not famous for having you know great stories or, or, or particularly great characters in the narrative sense of that word, but I think Midna is an example of them really nailing um, a character's arc and getting a feeling of who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And she totally makes up for the the lack of personality that Link has. Um, I, I think her animation is superb throughout mm. the entirety of the game. The way they use her eyes and her and her mm. mouth yeah. to just her subtly, yeah, just to subtly convey um, these little emotions like happiness and joy and playfulness. And she loves teasing Link all the time. And you'd, with any other character, you'd think that would, you know, get pretty annoying after a while but it's always endearing where she when she uh, takes the mick out of wolf link and stuff like that it's i think weird how similar that success. is yeah it's it's weird how similar that is to isun and amaterasu in uh, in akami mm, as well because yeah. again there was obviously a you know a development overlap here but isun again uh, isun becomes well for me became quite irritating at times whereas midna i was as i say i was always happy to hear from her um, so you mentioned Wolf Link there. That's obviously a big feature of this game, becoming a quadruped. Um, apparently, AOG Anima was inspired by the uh, the sequence we talked about back in the Link to the Past show, which is where Link, uh, for the first first time, goes to the, the Dark World in that game and becomes a pink rabbit <laughs> temporarily uh, because that's his inner, his inner self, as I think we discussed. Um, and so uh, Aonima thought of uh, having something, you know, a... a a different form for Link when he was in a different world kind of thing. Apparently Shigeru Miyamoto was not keen on this idea at all at first. Um, so it just goes to show that sometimes ideas that Miyamoto is, isn't keen on do get through into the, uh, into the final game uh, after he's uh, upturned the tables or whatever it is he does. Um, but I think in the end, like, I really love Wolf Link because I think he looks amazing and I love dogs. I love animals generally. Um, and I felt like, you know, the, the the movement and control and features that he offered, like digging and smelling for things, um, entertained me and, and broke up the game. But I know um, from our correspondence and from other things I've read that um, he wasn't an entirely popular or maybe so therefore not entirely successful addition. Um, but again, one thing that should be said is perhaps some of the more arduous segments um, that were Wolf Link in the original versions of the game. 10 years ago uh, were the Tears of Light, which you had to collect to restore your form. Um, but in the HD version, those have been stripped down by a third or a quarter, something like that. So there's fewer items that you have to get before you can restore your form. So perhaps that helps. And, and I think also I've read or we'll hear later that people suggest um, perhaps accurately that the Wolf Link content is front loaded. And by the end of the game, Wolf Link's kind of 
just what you are occasionally um but actually you know there are bits in the later dungeons where you have to become wolf link or you will become wolf link because you get enshrouded um and certain uh, certain rooms uh, of combat are actually more easily completed if you use uh, midna's powers and stuff so so yeah i'm a fan i have my wolf link amiibo right here on my desk and i i like it i wasn't overly fond of Wolf Link. I, I didn't hate him to the extent that uh, uh, some people uh, appear to. Um, I think he becomes more interesting and less burdensome when you get the ability to switch to him more or less at will. Um, yeah, sure. Because then he becomes more of a means towards solving puzzles rather than a an occasional frustration when you can see something that maybe you could have done if you were in your other form but you can't get to your other form because it's not like that yet so i mean it, it's it is one of and i think i've mentioned this in previous zelda shows but it is one of those things that frequently does show up in zelda games you you will frequently have another state that Link can go into. It's either another the Dark World, or it's being uh, regular Link versus being Minish Link, or you know, it's, it's something along those lines. And this this is that, and I, I like how it ends up more than I like how it starts, but um, mm. I guess maybe it kind of has to start where it does to get where it does, if, if that makes sense. It's hard to compare, or it's hard to not compare, rather, this to Okami, because you know, Wolf type of uh, um, protagonists Mm -hmm. in both of them. And I think that, you know, since the wolf was the primary focus in Okami, like that obviously controls a lot better in Okami. The combat's more interesting as a wolf in Okami. But, uh, you know, for what this is, it it, it provided an interesting set of skills. And um, especially when we were able to transform in and out, uh, it was a, a useful other form to be in. Um, helped you navigate around a little quicker as well. Uh, a little bit of time to, uh, you didn't have to necessarily call Epona in to get that extra speed boost. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and I, I did appreciate though that you needed to be Wolf Link less as the game went on because as you got more items and tools and stuff as Link, like that's where really all of the, uh, um, I guess, more inventive, like, gadget-based puzzle solving came in, and so it just became less and less of a uh, design priority at that point. Mm. Uh, And another animal uh, familiar who returns is Epona. This is the first time, I think, uh, that you get Epona from the start and uh, get to keep Epona fully grown. Um, You can't always call Epona when you want uh, until later in the game when you get the uh, the, the portable whistle at this uh, in this game you have to find the right type of grass to blow um, but uh, obviously in the intervening years between uh, ocarina um, horse locomotion in games had uh, come on somewhat although uh, as you may remember from our shadow of the colossus podcast um, you know it's still something that can and i think even I, i've seen people talking about 
Witcher's horse riding, uh, Witcher 3 even, you know, which is obviously a very recent game, and people still have issues with horses in games. For me, the only game that's really done it brilliantly so far is probably Red Dead Redemption. Um, but Epona certainly here is, I would say, more manoeuvrable than in, in previous uh, Zelda games. Uh, still has a horrible propensity to just suddenly stop yes. uh, when <laughs> uh, coming up against the wrong thing. And um, they've gone for this very sort of large, powerful uh, sort of vision of of a horse which i think uh, was was deliberate to you know to communicate these very large powerful animals if you've ever actually spent time near real horses um they really are big and dangerous uh albeit beautiful and very useful um so so Epona can still be tr- tricky to steer around corners and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but here you've now got uh, the ability finally to hack at things from your horse. And uh, that's used in a few set pieces uh, more than it is in general play. Um, there's also you can quickly mount. You don't have to kind of wait till everything's stationary and then slowly climb on. You can kind of leap on from the back. And there's also a, I'd forgotten about this, but there is a secret quick dismount as well. Um a button combination which allows you to flip straight off the back of even a moving horse and uh, jump back down into the combat so opponent actually for me didn't get used a lot because i would tend to normally fast travel or mm. simply uh, run about the place or just roll you know we love rolling it's a <laughs> it's a zelda game um but there are moments when opponent is uh, brought into the game um via via set piece there's some wagon wagon protecting mm. and and this sort of thing and uh, the final well the penultimate sequence of the multi-stage end boss is is an on-horse section as well which is a little tricksy but um well nothing that's gonna probably ever do you any damage it's just more about as with most of the fighting in this game it's more about how long it takes for you to get good at doing the thing which hurts them rather than actually running out of life at any at any stage any opponent thoughts people that that what you said what you said about just having it be a while before you get good enough at doing that that's that was me with Epona. Uh, mm. the one that i remember is um the first time in particular that you fight uh the king bulbin bulbin um bulbin on the bulbin, bridge yes oh, uh, on the bridge yeah, and the part right before annoying. it where you're in the field and you have to kind of chase him around it's not yeah, that it was yeah. necessarily a problem it's just that i wasn't very good at it so i i kept missing yeah. and it wasn't that it was hurting me particularly it was just that it took me a while to actually get up beside him and hit him in the right way so that i actually yeah. hit him and didn't just whiff on the side of his horse i'm not a fan of opponent of opponent in this game in particular i Aww. um i mean but you can talk to her when you're a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that like as you touched on before like the controls are probably deliberately a little obtuse because you know this is a this is an animal with a mind of its own. It's not supposed to control just like a Grand Theft Auto car or something. No, right. Um, but I, I think that it also kind of undersells that same fact that this is an animal with a mind of its own. In that, like you know, when you just barely graze up against something, it comes to a dead stop. Which, yeah. It, if you were riding a real horse and maybe this is completely wrong, I'm speaking from inexperience, but like, I would think that a real horse would know, like, I don't want to be going into this rock wall. I'm going to subtly kind of work my body in such a way that I can avoid this yeah. myself and, what and they kind do of in, automate um, that a little bit. Yeah. That's sort of what they do in red dead, isn't it? And, and even yeah, some of the yeah. other, I mean, again, you know, this, uh, that was a, a four years on from this, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think about, cause we, several of us had, 
serious issues with uh, aggro, didn't we, um, on, on Shadow of the Colossus. But And that was a, a, a game of around the same time, um, sort of, yeah, and, and there, was a, there was a knack to it. But, yeah, no, I, I totally get what you mean. I, th- I think I, I prefer aggro to this horse here simply because there are moments where you're on... Uh, sorry, Epona. <laughs> uh, um, but um, there were moments where you were on bridges and, and corridors in Shadow of the Colossus where you could just hold down the X, bus, uh, X button and Agro yeah. would just make make her own path. Um, That's right. And Epona, uh, by comparison, does feel much more like a stiff vehicle that you ride across the landscape. Um, it, it's a it's a real shame that I I do end up feeling quite negatively towards Epona because I feel like out of all of the um, you know games with this kind of environment. Um, Epona could have been a real success. Like I, I would have loved to have um, had a horse like this um, and, and explore all uh, all of this environment. But the problem is, transforming into Wolflink is a lot quicker, and most of the time, Wolflink controls a lot better as well. And I think just ultimately, Wolflink fits into what they're trying to do. Um, in the larger scheme of the game, much better than Epona does. Uh, I did moan a little bit about Wolf Link's kind of contribution to the gameplay side, but again, um, I didn't find any of that stuff irritating, whereas almost all of Epona's set-piece moments felt irritating. And then, of course, like you have to... Um, you know, in the early parts of the game, you have to find a piece of grass, you blow into it, then here comes a pona, and and then later on you have to buy a whistle. And it's just quicker to just, especially on the Wii U version, where transforming into a wolf is simply a touch of a button on the touchscreen, um, it's just easier to turn into a wolf. And you're only slightly slower when you're at full sprint with the wolf. So it, it just feels like a pona is kind of superfluous to this game harsh but yeah. fair yeah let's talk about the the sound always uh, uh, i think we've discussed all the way through this series so far that the sound is an important part of the zelda experience for many of us it's not a game that uh, most of us would generally play the majority of with the sound turned down um so let's start with the score one thing i do miss uh, sadly from the hd version is that they took out the attract mode that was present on the gamecube and i assumed the wii version as well which was uh, which had the orcus- orchestral version of the theme playing over a montage which I absolutely loved, and for some reason that just isn't on the Wii U version. Um, so the apparently they were talking about having orchestral pieces in this game, like uh, real orchestra stuff, um, and using uh, you know a full a full orchestra for for the big scenes and a uh, you know like a, a smaller uh, string quartet or, or whatever or maybe an octet for the uh, for the quieter sequences. But ultimately they decided to go with. Um, more traditional you know synthesized sequence stuff that can um sort of ebb and flow with uh more easily again you know we've heard we've heard real instruments being used and blended and stuff in in more modern games but uh the solution here was to was to keep things more synthesized now i think um Overall, in terms of the composition, I absolutely love the Twilight Princess score. Personally, I think it's uh, it's a really, really strong one. Um, I love the main theme, um, and 
lots of the returning Koji Kondo music is is beautifully rearranged as well. Like I love the uh, the new version of the Gorons music and the Zora's music. I think they're just beautiful. Um, and then you've got all the stuff uh, in the uh, in the Twilight Zone, which sounds a lot of it sounds like it could be by Akira Yamaoka from a from a Silent Hill game, which I think is great in a Zelda. Um, and uh, and it and it lends a, a really otherworldly uh, sense to that place, along with those sound effects that that uh, Josh mentioned. But the only downside, again, and this is something that's come up time and time again, is that sometimes the instruments do not sound entirely convincing to my ear uh, sometimes you know trumpets and violins sound a little bit midified and that's always a shame because it slightly uh, undermines the quality of the music for me but overall i love the soundtrack i've been um i got the i'm sure many people did who bought the hd version in a box with a, an amiibo you also get a soundtrack cd and uh, it immediately went on my uh on heavy rotation on my uh, itunes so i'm a big fan yeah, I, I think it it kind of scores highly for me in the music department as well. Um, I don't think it's quite as um, memorable for me as Wind Waker, and and we'll get onto this with the Skyward Sword uh, podcast. But I I think Skyward Sword soundtrack is really really strong as well. But as like the main theme that plays as your uh, walking through Hyrule Field, that really sticks out to me. But also Midna's theme, um, especially uh, when it plays um, when she's uh, slightly under the weather, and you have to <laughs> you have to transport her to to Zelda. The the use of music with with her and and that moment was really affecting and um, really sold the urgency of that moment. Yeah, I know that Midna's Lament is often cited by people as as a real favourite. It's not necessarily one of my absolute favourites from the soundtrack, but obviously people really love it. Uh, Yeah, well, the soundtrack was fine, but it felt like it didn't really stand out for me as much. Um, Midna's, not Revenge, what is the Midna's Lament? Lament. (laughs) Revenge, gosh, um, is the only... (laughs) <laughs> Although she does sort of get revenge. Yeah, yeah. It's the only track that really stands out for me, uh, thinking about it in memory. And um, kind of as I was playing it, the rest of the soundtrack just, for the most part, kind of faded to the background. It's just kind of a very standard Zelda fare. So I'm afraid I don't have a lot of uh, a lot to contribute as far as the music goes. It's almost like music's a very subjective thing isn't it um yeah <laughs> absolutely and uh, and uh, the, uh, the first um zelda pick i think i picked for our sound of play podcast was the mm. snow peak ruins piece which plays mm. throughout your time in the uh, in the uh, yeto and yeta dungeon which is one of my absolute favorite pieces of game music of all time so yeah just goes to show um and yeah i think also for me the sound uh effects in this game and the and the uh the ambiance is uh, is important as well. Um, the sound cues for combat take a certain uh, amount, uh, as it does indeed the combat, take a certain amount of um, cues from uh, the Wind Waker predecessor. Uh, there's sort of an orchestra stab type of stuff, but this goes in a slightly more, uh, a less lyrical, more realistic direction. But uh, But again, I think it's important to me in terms of how I feel when I hit a massive kind of um, this game really throws a lot more enemies at you than the previous 3D games have. Um, obviously, the technology allowed it, so there are rooms where you've got dozen, maybe a dozen enemies around you at one time. 
and that sense of really hitting them hard both with the sort of the the famous um like pause of action when you hit but also combined with that incredibly crisp and smashing um sword on armor and sword on orc flesh or whatever it is sound for me is uh, is really important stuff but i think also there's more than um you know some some of the the stuff that really ages uh sort of previous gen early 3d stuff we've talked about before in other podcasts is the sort of the the dull thudding repetitive footstep sounds a- a- across the world and mm. although nintendo did a lot um to move this kind of stuff forward in 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 zelda games compared to what's you know some developers were doing elsewhere this game allows for you know because it was on disc format even the cube version came on a little disc um and you know technology had moved on there was more ram um there's a lot more there's a lot more different sounds in this world than there had been in previous elders so for me i think that really helped bring this hyrule alive um it's yeah it's much it's much more subtle as well so you might not immediately whereas in a previous zelda 3d you might go near a waterfall and you suddenly hear you know like you're next to a waterfall now and there is water but here you might suddenly notice when you're standing on a bridge that you can hear just the water kind of trickling by below or Mm. you can hear the glittering of a bug in in the nearby bushes or that sort of thing so um yeah i think the soundscape for me is quite an important part and yeah no never more so than in the uh the silent hill (laughs) twilight bits with the with the with the discordant honking and uh and strange um so yeah sort of digital uh yeah almost sci-fi horror effects um um mm. yeah again the soundscape for me is is a huge part of what i enjoy about this game i really like the way that a lot of the gadgets sound as well like i think the mm. sound design on the uh the claw shot and the spinner mm. in particular have just like a real like harsh gritty mechanical feeling to them like they make them sound like they are real machines and like it's such like a simple thing but like you can just that extra like sound textural component makes it sound like you know you can hear the the chain dragging along the inside of the claw shot and stuff and it it makes it a little bit more tangible couldn't agree more ryan talk to me about cutscenes. yeah uh this is one thing that i wanted to draw attention to in particular in that uh, the cutscenes are uh they feel like they are much more I don't want to say more directed, but they, they feel like they like the direction that is in them is a lot, uh, a lot more heavy handed. Like you can not in a bad way, but you can feel the direction a lot more than you could in previous Zelda games or in a lot of other video games in particular. Um, yeah, a bit more cinematic. I, yeah, yeah. But I, I just I really love like there's some like almost art housey type stuff that goes on. Uh, and a lot of this plays into the way that the characters are animated as well. Um, the way that uh, Zant particular kind of contorts his body as he's speaking almost feels like something that would have uh, fit into a few weeks ago, our uh, dark dreams don't die issue, um, right. which is really kind of big and expressive. And so like indicative of his character and almost like the way that he holds his body in these like unnaturally balanced positions makes him feel like he has power over gravity itself almost. Um, But I also really love, and I was struck every single time they happened by um, there were a lot of cutscenes that just dropped the sound completely and Mm. had an enemy kind of like running at you in slow motion, um, oftentimes on, uh, on hogback, so to speak. 
And you just got these long extended shots of just an enemy silently just running towards the camera. It reminded me a lot of, uh, of a scene that I believe I'd mentioned in a previous issue, even in, uh, in the Korean monster movie, the host. And, um, I just really love that. Uh, it, like, it just felt so different because I hadn't really seen anything like that in the Zelda game before, but it was just like really art housey and, uh, and very noticeable. Hmm. I, I, you know, having, you know, played these games in sequ- uh, sequential order, um, Twilight Princess's um, approach to cutscenes really stood out, um, especially after Wind Waker, because Wind Waker has, for me, a much more appealing art direction overall. But the cutscenes uh, are very simple in terms of blocking and um, where the camera is placed and everything like that. It's very, you know, simple character interactions and um it's the you know the characters facial animations that do most of the work in those scenes like the camera is just stationary and may occasionally flip to one character to another but it's not really doing anything exciting whereas with with uh, twilight princess the camera's not afraid to go all the way back and view characters from a distance but then get really close in as well and and try some unusual angles as well especially in those dream sequences um, that pop up during the game um, it's it's really exciting um, to kind of see them experiment with the the cutscenes at this point in time and I think they really um, cap, uh, capitalize on it in um, Skyward Sword later on however um, I think there are too many cutscenes especially towards the beginning of the game and I think um, when people talk about um, Twilight Princess having a somewhat um, laborious opening, I think the cutscenes are kind of a major contributor to that. And I really, I didn't really notice it the first time I played through the game, but I really noticed it this time. The first, like first quarter, first half is a bit too uh, harsh. Uh, the first quarter of this game there's a constant stop and start to your interactions of the world where you'll do it with akami weirdly yeah yeah absolutely Uh, akami definitely suffers from this as well but um yeah like that you'll be asked to do a task heard these goats okay cutscene um walk over hit a cutscene a chat at a cutscene and it and it did get really irritating after a while and i'm glad that you know at a certain point, they get um, you know fewer and and further apart, but um, I think they could have toned it down a bit in the cutscene department. Uh, one of the things that I think it's kind of easy to skip over, and uh, that's probably because it's you know we're doing this series and it's been well established. But I do want to talk a little bit about um, the actual control of Link and moving around the world because I think it's yeah it's something that's easy to take for granted because um you know famously Nintendo kind of uh 
it's like you know a lot of people for a lot of people and a lot of reviewers um they sort of they nailed third person control and combat with ocarina of time and and then it's been you know a case of implementing and iterating upon that ever since um and so yeah it is in a way it's easy to take for granted you know the z targeting is still here um the auto targeting comes in absolutely invaluable when it comes to uh, shooting things out the air with arrows but also you've got you know you've got the option of um aiming with uh, with an analog stick or in the case of the wii u version um the first person gyroscopic aiming which is uh, as we said in wind waker i think it, it's generally really successful and, and quite a lot of fun um but there are also as well as an enormous amount of uh, positives and just you know it being so seamless and fluid that controlling link um you know, it feels feels to me anyway, like for forty hours, almost pleasure. But there are a couple of little niggles that I wanted to mention. So one is his running animation. Uh, yeah, yeah. He looks like he really <laughs> needs a poo, um, and, it, and it's and it's weird. Uh, and you get used to it as the game goes on, and generally you roll everywhere when you can anyway, so <laughs> it becomes less of an issue. But that's an odd one, considering that this game actually features a fairly extensive amount of motion capture um, and some absolutely glorious animations on Link, like the one where he's sizing up an opponent and he starts uh, spinning the sword in his hand, I just think is so cool. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's just loads of, you know, both main character and incidental animation. So it's weird that Link's actual running is so constipated. But uh, there's the other thing, and this has always been an issue for me um, in these games, but particularly this one, and maybe it's just my failure, but if I hook shot onto some vines and I'm thinking of crawling up to the top of a ledge, does any anyone else always end up going left along the vines? <laughs> No, I think that I is don't just think you. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Okay, must just be me. You can, <laughs> you can, you can not worry about that anymore. I think it's, it feels like if I aim to aim to the vines, pushing up on the controller, and then grab onto the vines with the hook shot, and then zoom over and continue to push up, he just starts going left. Maybe, maybe it is me. Uh, so good. Any other, uh, any other imaginary issues with the control or uh, movement of Link? I think. Um one issue that crops up occasionally is that um, Wolf Link can't really do anything very precise. There, there's a section in particular where it asks you to go along these series of tight ropes um, uh, along, you know, a broken staircase. Got to be really and, careful. Yeah, and if you make a single mistake, you have to do the whole thing over all over again. And this is quite a tall tower that you have to climb up. Um, so it's not, it's not. <laughs> It's it's quite inconvenient to uh, fall down all the way to the bottom, especially if you're close to the end. And I just yeah. found that lining up Wolf Link with the rope um, just proved it. I mean, it 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 wasn't difficult. It was just more irritating than anything because you make one slight mistake and then you're going off the edge. And thankfully, Wolf Link will grip onto the edge, so. Um, yeah. most of the time you're all right pause. but yeah. still I'd say I, it I, wasn't it wasn't super pernickety but it was perhaps more than we're used to in a post yeah. um, sort of Assassin's Creed kind of age where you can uh, or, or um, something like Infamous where you kind of almost get sucked towards things to make sure that you balance on them absolutely and and and, and I think uh, I, I think ultimately it's it's just because of 
you, you know the arrangement of the character because it's uh, on you know Wolf Link's on four legs rather than two. You just have to account for a kind yeah. of a longer base, um, which for is the what character. Miyamoto was saying, I think. Yeah, um, but but it could have been worse. They could have put in six-axis balancing type stuff, as oh, in, God, as yeah. in Uncharted. So. Absolutely, um, it, <laughs> but it, it seems a bit inconsistent about because sometimes Midna does these massive jumps for you, where she grabs you and throws you, but then other times she's relying on you to balance on the ropes. Yeah. I think that uh, most, if not all of us, played the Wii U version most recently, but I think the largest problem that I had was actually the first time I played, I had some real issues with some of the motion controls on the original Wii. Ah, right, yes. We we should mention this, because I've never never experienced these. I've I've watched other people doing it and thinking, yeah. And and I'm still yet to play Skyward Sword, where obviously things were... um, you know refined apparently so we shall see but uh but yeah so was it was it the combat or was it the actual was it the movement was it the aiming and grabbing thing i believe it was which, mostly the combat um because you you were with the wii remote you were doing what the wii remote was at that point supposed to do which was you were swinging yeah. it to swing your sword and swinging the sword just normally was okay, but when you start to get into some of the techniques that you are taught, and some of the um, the more deliberate things that you need to do in order to pull these off, I remember having a lot of trouble with that. Uh, and now I, I haven't played it in a while, but I really, I really thought that using the um, the Wii U controller. Yeah. fixed that almost entirely um, and I imagine that the GameCube version was probably largely the same um, I never played the GameCube yep. version unfortunately uh, but yeah the, the Wii motion controls uh, from what I remember took a lot of getting used to uh, and and I, I made it all the way through the game with those so I mean they weren't completely impenetrable but I, I didn't like the feeling of them the first time I played through and from what I remember um Skyward Sword was much better on that front, uh, but it, it was it, this was kind of just getting started on that. It was early in the Wii's life cycle, and it was the first Zelda game on the Wii. So it, I mean, I understand to an extent why it wasn't maybe one hundred percent there, but I, I do I, that is definitely in my memories for this game was that I, I wasn't all that fond of uh, the Wii motion controls. Uh, I was, I was actually going to bring up the fact that um, I think, whereas I agree with Lee, uh, Leah, that um, the sword, cap, sword combat with the motion controls is, is pretty weak. Um, and I think it's mostly because you're waggling to trigger an animation rather yeah. than in Skyward Sword, where you do feel like you have more one-to-one control over the weapon. Wii Motion um, Plus. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um but the hook shot, um, the the bow, I loved using the Wiimote for those devices, and I, mm. and I preferred using the Wiimote motion controls to the uh, motion controls in the Wii U, just simply because mm. I it you know that controller it does feel more like you're pointing a weapon and shooting mm-hmm. a target, whereas with the Wii U it's more. Uh, abstract in my mind than that um, mm. and yeah I, I think all of that stuff especially when you get into the later temples where you've got the dual hook shot and you're having to hook shot between things really quickly having that kind of speed and precision of the, the Wii controller um, ended up being um, really advantageous um, and, and I do miss it a bit in this Wii U version but having said that 
I enjoyed the combat uh, encounters in this version of the game considerably more than the uh, Wii version. We must crack on and talk about the uh, dungeons, and I suppose going along with that would be a bit of item and boss chat as well. Um, let's hear at this point from some of our contributors, contrib- contributors even. Uh, Major Gamer says, uh, there are two main areas that helped elevate the game in my eyes. The first are the dungeons. They use their items well. They have neat puzzles inside of them. And most impressive of all, they mostly feel like they fit into the world itself instead of just designed for the player. Where Snow Peak gets to be a mansion for the Yetis and the Goron Mines is actually a mine. And Andrew Brown, regular correspondent, says, If you play Zelda for Dungeons, then Twilight Princess is the series' peak. They feel like an organic part of the world, with a function purpose beyond an obstacle course to guard a hidden MacGuffin. In Ocarina of Time, Death Mountain Crater has a fire temple, because that's where the fire temple goes. In Twilight Princess, the Gorons have a mine in Death Mountain, because it makes sense that they would. Even the more inexplicable dungeons, Snow Peak Ruins in particular, feel like a mysterious remnant of a lost world rather than the arbitrary cave filled with puzzles. And the puzzles themselves, whether I'm redirecting water through the shattered machinery of Lakebed Temple or ricocheting between spinner tracks in Arbiter's Grounds, Twilight Princess creates dungeons of scale and scope seen nowhere else in the series so far. Uh, I agree. Uh, They're my favourite. Absolutely one of the things that I love about this game twilight princess and why i consider it one of my favorite zeldas and in many ways a refinement on everything that had gone before up to this point i'm not saying that everything about twilight princess for me is better than the 3d predecessors because that's not the case but for me the set of dungeons and there are nine of them ten of them it's uh yeah nine i think um they are i think they are all just utterly compelling i never I, they they were just the right level of challenge for me in terms of puzzling in that i never ever needed to look up a solution there was one time i was checking before i did some backtracking to see that i needed to do it just because i didn't have time to get lost but i solved everything myself i had an enormous amount of pleasure in doing it uh, i totally agree with what our correspondents say about the dungeons feeling like actual places instead of just purely Zelda dungeons. So yeah, real, real highlight for me. Um, play, solving them all again this year, ten years later, was uh, was a, a genuine pleasure. One of the funnest, funnest, most gaming things I've done in 2016. I'll agree with Andrew in so far as the dungeons feel particularly organic. I think in particular there is a uh, a lot of attention paid to making them feel like um, like navigatable spaces. Uh, like again, you know drawing back to the uh, comparison of Dark Souls, you know, in the same way that those castles and buildings feel like logical living spaces, so do the uh, the castles, and, and in particular Hyrule Castle right at the end of this game felt like a really nice, uh, it, it kind of invoked the feeling of Hyrule Castle from Link to the Past while making it also feel like a naturalistic place that you would find and explore in the real world as well. Um but I, I think I would have to say that my one of my big criticisms of this game is that the items oftentimes feel a bit inorganic. Not all the time. I, I think there are some really wonderful items in here. I think that the, uh, whatever, that possession rod or whatever it is feels really cool and is super creative. Um, I like that you get your big wrecking ball from uh, one of the enemies after mm. you defeat him. And uh, that that feels like a really nice and organic way to gain an item but um some of them like in particular the kind of notorious spinner 
feels like a bit of an enigma for me. Like I don't understand how it works or, and it only serves to solve problems that were created specifically for the spinner, which, you know, is, I guess, every item in a Zelda game. I was game. about to say, but, yeah, um, isn't that, isn't that it, always true? Yeah, but typically they're kind of worked into the world. You know, you would see something high up in a tree and then you get your uh, your um, boomerang or your uh, your bow and arrow and you say, okay, now I can take that thing down from the tree. And uh, it doesn't necessarily feel like as prescripted as the uh, the spinner tracks always did. They just never felt like they would serve any purpose in the world other than accommodating the spinner, which it seemed like there was only one of in the world. And so I don't really, that one always just really stuck out to me. And I think that, um, that it kind of redeemed itself in how fun it was to use in Hyrule Warriors. But as far as uh, this particular game, I'm uh, yeah, definitely not a fan of the spinner. That, that's really interesting because uh, for me, the spinner and, and that temple in particular, Arbiter's Grounds, is a real highlight for me. Mm. And I, I really love the way the um, spinner is used in the boss fight. Um, the boss fight yeah. in the Arbiter's Grounds, I, I've forgotten the Stalord. name. Stalord. Stalord. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's I, like pinball. Just one of, <laughs> yeah. It's one of my favorite bosses in the, in the entire series, just the way that it starts out mm. like a game of pinball and then you have this cinematic kind of chase um, through the you know the circular design that forms yeah, yeah. Uh, with the the giant head firing fireballs at you um, I really enjoyed that and um, just in general I think I, the temples do a great job of getting you to do really really fun things all the time not mm. really challenging things but really really fun things all the time like the Goron Mines those boots and their interaction with the uh, magnetized walls is just utter joy to me. <laughs> um, mm. I, I know I, I, I could see the criticism that some people might find the slow movement across those magnetized mm. walls a bit irritating, but for me, just the animation and just how heavy the boots feel and the sound design mm-hmm. and just the pleasure of Link hanging upside down and then going on these platforms where they're flipping over and having to account for that. Um, it's just endlessly uh, joyous to me. And then you have Snow Peak Ruins, oh. which I think is a success both in temple design but also just injecting a temple with bucket loads of personality um the 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 two characters yet yet is it yetu and yet yetu and yeta yeah i just think they they are such stunning designs as well they're so scary and adorable i love the (laughs) the fact they look like they've sort of got feathers and they look really and uh yetu i think is the female and she looks all warm and cuddly and then she's scary at the end it's yeah oh, that that whole and the fact that that dungeon is their house is just uh just it's that is such, one of my favorite sequences in any zelda yeah absolutely and the way yetu gets so excited when you bring him a new ingredient for his soup <laughs> and he punishes <laughs> you, you over. over yeah it's just oh and that's so oh yeah it's it just looks, magical soup it looks lovely even though what they put <laughs> in it doesn't rancid. sound 
Yeah, but <laughs> the soup itself, it looks great. <laughs> yeah, so I tweeted, um, I was tweeting about this sequence when I was playing it through because I remembered it so fondly from 10 years ago and, you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't necessarily know if it would if it would get me again um and uh I'm sorry i can't remember who it was but someone just tweeted me back saying about how utterly joyful it was just opening a chest and getting a wheel of cheese mm. out of it yeah. <laughs> you see all of my complaints though they kind of they are not necessarily things that in and of themselves would be uh game breaking or anything but they just play specifically against the strengths of this particular game like I love how organic everything feels to the world, which is why kind of the spinner stands out to me as something that doesn't make sense within this world. And also like the snow temple, I I do really like that temple, but it has these weird like mechanical devices that are built into its walls to transport cannonballs from room to room, specifically because the citizens of Hyrule are, I guess, too polite to leave the door open behind them and just wheel the cannonball through. Like they only seem to serve... They they only serve the world insofar as the world would have to like adhere to its like, you're right, weird mechanics. I I agree with the point you're making, Ryan. I think for me yeah. it's more just that it's not what I'm I'm really looking for from a Zelda game. I'm not right, yeah. I'm not looking for that consistency. I'm just looking for um, fun game design, really. And and I think this attempts um, as Andrew brought you know brought up attempts to have these temples exist organically in the world but at the yeah. end of the day there are still massive boss doors that require boss keys <laughs> that show up in every single temple and there's always an item inside the chest that look all you know completely identical oh, no I, Ryan's I just... going off to work for Nintendo and doing his market <laughs> research now he's going to change it all so all this magic he's going to suck all the magic out of it with his, with his quest for realism <laughs> but, um, yeah I, I think if if we were talking about a game made by From Software I think that would be a bigger cri- criticism for me but because this is a Zelda game ultimately I, I absolutely see your point it just never became a bugbear for me Leah how did you feel about the dungeons in Twilight Princess I really enjoyed them uh, I think I I think I side more with Josh on the terms of the items that you find in the dungeons uh, because I there are a lot of items that you that you locate that are new to this game that haven't really been seen before including the spinner yeah, that's right. uh, and mm. I, I I enjoyed all of them. I I really thought that that was a strong point. Um, kind of having those uh, new ways to solve things that maybe you hadn't run into previously. Um, although I will say I think that the uh, the magnet boots were probably my favorite. I I really liked that you got them for a completely different reason. Uh, before you ever go into that dungeon, you you get them just to to be able to fight or you know stand Sumo against wrestle. the uh, yeah. the the Goron to let you in. You don't know anything about having any uh, magnetization related to them until you're actually in the dungeon. So um, I I really liked that. I liked that there are some things in in this game that serve multiple functions like that you can sink yourself underwater with the magnet boots or you can go up on one of the tracks the spinner while i think that it's 
very situational. I mean, you don't you don't really use it anywhere other than on the tracks. But maybe you wouldn't. Maybe the reason it's in there is because you uh, you need it for that particular dungeon. I liked that boss fight as well, although I was bad at it. I will say that I seemed to be a magnet for those fireballs. I fell off the walls a lot, but. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed them. I, I thought that they were well-designed, not particularly difficult, but rewarding when you found out how to use the item that you're uh, that you're gathering in that dungeon. Mm, yeah, double hook shots, I think, were yes. probably my favorite. Uh, <laughs> lots useful. of cool puzzles. And, you know, could, things like combining um, hook shots with heavy boots to pull down switches and stuff like yeah, that. It's yeah. very satisfying. And again, the, the mechanical sound effects. I mean, the... The boss fights, uh, I think I, again, this is an unusual Zelda in that I think I had fun with all the boss fights. Um, normally there's been one or two in the series that we've covered up to now where I've been like, oh, that one was just really annoying. Um, but I think that might be partly, again, because the difficulty uh, level just seemed to be so incredibly low. Um, a lot of these mm. bosses, I literally uh, didn't take more than like half a heart's hit from them. Um, they just seemed really to really telegraph what they were doing visually spectacular mm -hmm. satisfying to kill and puzzle out but again and this is not me doing it I'm really good at games thing because I'm really not that good at games um, I'm really a very mediocre player but and yes okay I've played this before but I didn't and maybe I had some more problems 10 years ago um, but yeah overall I found these bosses to be entertaining, um, but quite simple and, and yeah, just like fun rather than scary. I know our Jay, uh, my right hand man on Kane and Rince, or one of my many right hand men, um, has been stuck on uh, Twilight Dragon Argorok for 10 years now. Um, <laughs> and Jay, if you're listening to this, I don't know if you're listening to this one because you're not editing it, but um, that is really easy. You know, I said, I think that's really <laughs> oh. easy. It's really easy. Like, d have you forgotten how to auto target or something? I thought that was a really cool fight. <laughs> That's yeah, the, yeah. It's very cool. Uh, high up above in the in the wind and on these big things that only exist to fight a dragon on that it conveniently uh, bases itself on. But yeah, if you use the auto target, you just swing yourself around the outside and then um, and just quickly grab him and yeah, smack him in the back. It's um, yeah. Most of I think the only bits I had any sort of had to do any repetition on with the there's there's some quite short timing windows on the QTEs for the mm -hmm. um for the final two stages of uh, or two of the four stages of Ganon I should say because um, you've got Ganon's puppet then you've got Dark Beast Ganon who's a the pig Ganon basically and you have to wrestle him down uh, there's that's a quick time event sort of thing and then the final blow you have to do another sort of QT type affair, um, which took me a few attempts because the the window seems quite small. But um, but yeah, fun overall. Bosses, people. I really hated the underwater tentacle boss. Really, um, at least the the first form I had a lot of problems with because it felt like the windows were just really uh, really small. In which you'd have to like find its eyeball that was kind of like going in and out of its various tentacles and hook shot that and then slash up the eyeball. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it always had like four or five arms trying to go out and grab you. And you already have kind of restricted movement underwater. Uh, it became a lot easier in the second uh, form, which kind of played itself really. But um, yeah, yeah, that, that first form, I just had a lot of frustration with. Josh, anything to say on the bosses? 
Um, I, I don't know if this is skipping ahead, but I, I pretty much um, feel exactly the same as you do, Leon. But um, the, the boss encounter that stuck out for me was actually the very last one um, with Ganondorf, uh, just because um, I liked um, the use of multiple stages with this with this edition of Ganondorf, just because it didn't feel um, cheap. It, it actually felt effective um, in, in this uh, example. And um, also just that final sword fight with you and him in the middle of a field felt really cinematic and, uh, and powerful uh, in a way that um, I, I didn't necessarily feel with, uh, with the other 3D titles. Uh, I think I felt Ganondorf was much more intimidating and scary as a, as an antagonist in this iteration of Zelda than he's ever been uh, in the previous titles for me. No, you weren't jumping ahead. We need to move on. Right, uh, it's Ryan's very brief other Zelda stuff corner. Go for it, Ryan. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the uh, time following Twilight Princess, uh, Link was almost in Marvel Ultimate Alliance, uh, just the Wii version of that. Um, you can still find some uh, some gameplay videos of him being demoed, uh, but origin- um, but uh, the story goes that Nintendo kind of, uh, told them that it was not okay because I think they, they demonstrated Link and Samus on a PlayStation 2 unit, and I think that sent the message to Nintendo that they wanted the characters to be uh, on all of the platforms, and <clears throat> Nintendo wasn't cool with that. So he didn't end up making Failed. the cut. Yeah. But um, I guess more relevantly to this game in particular is Link's crossbow training, which I've not had the opportunity to play myself. It came with the, uh, I don't remember the name of that attachment that you sort can uh, slap holder. your remote into. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah uh, I very nearly heard, bought this, but, but mm-hmm. didn't. I very I nearly bought it. this. I had oh, okay. this um, oh, cool. when it launched. Uh, it uh, it was, yeah, a um, wasn't quite a gun attachment. It, it was sort of like that, but it was a little more elaborate. Um, yeah. And the crossbow training was a very simplistic thing. Um, it, I mean, it was mostly just a target practice type thing. I think it was maybe like a twenty dollars package for the attachment and the uh, and the uh, game itself. Um, but I mean, it was it was interesting. It was it was more of a tech demo than anything else, I think. But it, they, for what it was, it was it was fine. You know, duck hunt. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. I've heard pretty positive things from the people who have played it, and they, they seem to really like it. So, yeah, it's an in- interesting package if anybody is wanting to look into that. There's three different uh, modes. There's a target shooting. There's uh, defender levels, which I believe would be kind of like horde mode type stuff, and then uh, ranger levels where you get to actually control Link and uh, explore these worlds using the nunchuck adapter. Right, let's hear from com slash forum. Uh, and also... You can email us, as somebody did, podcast at com. Sean S. Thomas says, Twilight Princess is probably the only Zelda game I'm ambivalent about. I hold nothing against the game and I found it to be a perfectly decent quest, but equally, I struggle to find myself recommending it to friends over one of the others in the series. Many of the common criticisms from gamers usually rang, unusually rang true for me too. Hyrule feels a bit devoid of life at times, the opening is slow, the tears of light fetch quests got dull, and the game holds your hand too often. I also think that when I played it chronologically probably affected my enjoyment. I'd only played one Zelda title before this one and it was only a few months prior so its familiarity after Ocarina was clear to see for me with the N64 classic being so fresh in my memory. 
I'd also recently experienced Shadow of the Colossus and Nakami and Hyrule in Twilight Prin- and Hyrule in Twilight Princess neither had the mystery nor the character of those games worlds. Akami also saw you play as Wolf and doing so in this game always felt like a come down after the movement, control and combat Amaterasu gives you. But being a Zelda, it still obviously offers a lot of memorable moments. I I adored the spinner and regard it as one of the series' finest additions. Shame it isn't used more, mind. The quirky Wild West town and snowboard sequences were great. The Sky Temple you tackled with dual hook shots seemed epic at the time, and some of the optional side quests were great, such as the lava cavern hidden in the side of the mountain by the Great Bridge, or the huge multi-floor challenge dungeon you have to battle to the bottom of in the desert. Overall, Twilight Princess is a game I'd neither wholeheartedly recommend nor actively discourage people from playing. Uh, just to interject, I know that uh, our listener Andrew Brown wanted us to mention the Wild West influences, so there our correspondent's done it. And also there is, of course, the fact that Kakariko Village in this game is, is set out exactly like an old kind of canyon town from Wild West America, so uh, definite influences there. Sam Watt a new correspondent I believe, says for such a long time I was convinced that this game was one of the finest moments in the series however, after so many years and countless playthroughs I now see Twilight Princess very much as a game of two halves the first half is the daring new darker chapter that Nintendo teased famously so early on, the world of Hyrule enveloped in a twisted shadow realm in such a vivid living way that it seemed set to surpass even a link to the past Strange phantasmagoria and otherworldly beasts pour into peaceful Hyrule, their fearsome and surprisingly stoic prophet Zant at the head, boldly marching straight into Hyrule Castle, not stopping for a moment to entertain any resistance. This was the game I was excitedly booting up that Christmas afternoon. The second half is the game Nintendo clearly wanted to make, Ocarina of Time 2. With the GameCube's power and and the echoes of expecting Zelda fans, Nintendo felt this new Twilight Princess was the perfect opportunity. Only after so many years of playing the game, and after having grown into an adult myself, do I see the half-baked mechanics and concepts at play. I now understand much more of the claims that this game is unexciting for many people, despite how grand and memorable some of its best moments are. I think the feeling of lessened excitement is due to its structural similarity to Ocarina of Time. As great as some of this game's moments were, they felt too familiar already. There are many factors that keep me from placing this game above other Zelda titles, which is a shame considering how much love and talent was clearly poured into this game. The terribly slow and lengthy opening, with its unavoidable tutorials, its underutilised items such as the near-pointless slingshot and limited spinner, and its muddled plot are some such factors. Not to mention the game's tone, which, like so much of Twilight Princess, is just not taken to its fullest potential. Countless elements in Twilight Princess felt half-baked, but the shiny facade and the sheer quantity of these lovingly Zelda things made this problem easier to forget at the time. The worst offender, though, may be Wolf Link himself, who has a similar range of tricks to merely one of the four forms the character has to choose from in Majora's Mask. The last new ability Wolf Link receives in the game is before even the first dungeon. The wolf form in this game is so limited and underutilised it staggers me considering how central Wolf Link supposedly is to the game. If the designers had Wolf Link learn feral combat alongside human Link and contrast that with his more refined sword combat then Twilight Princess could have been a game that more evenly splits the tasks between Link's two forms. Instead we have a game that is arguably more of a true sequel to Ocarina of Time than even Majora's Mask. The narrative of the game also suffers from this Ocarina of Time dilution. I'd assumed the princess of the game would simply be Midna, but 
with Elia's confusing presence and the token princess of Zelda herself, too many ingredients spoil what should have been a more focused and singular concept. I thought Zant had a fantastic had fantastic potential for a final boss until he was downgraded to lunatic henchman and forced to step, step aside for Ganondorf. The plot development reflects the experience of this game's narrative as a whole, original concepts forced to yield to remastered concepts from 1998. Twilight Princess struggles to be its own game, having to live in the enormous shadow of expectation from its older brother, Ocarina of Time. Twilight Princess certainly isn't bad, I certainly got my money's worth from the game and then some, but looking through the hype around the game and having my initial excitement age away, I can see how safe this game is in the grand scheme of things. I hope that Nintendo will someday work on a tighter, more unique Zelda experience, or at least a Zelda game that isn't afraid to step away from series hallmarks. Major Gamer, another new contributor, says, With ten years since the last time I played Twilight Princess, this was a good time to revisit it to see how my memories on the game stood. It came off as better than I remembered, possibly due to skipping over the collectibles this go-around. Unfortunately, the weaknesses were still there. When found, the spinner was a great new item to be played around with, and you even get a nice playroom for it right away, followed by the fantastic boss fight that is Stalord. After, it has little to no practical use. In fact, most items in the game suffer the same problem, becoming near useless once their dungeon is complete. Even the main gimmick of the game, Wolflink, fell to this, becoming relegated to a faster travel method for the way too big world filled with too little. Midna gets to be one of the few fleshed-out characters of the series. We see her start off resenting the people of Hyrule and only using Link as a means to an end. After being mortally wounded, she is against Zelda's sacrifice for her and wishes Link luck to save Hyrule. These are things that Midna at the start would never have said and gives her a nice character arc that lasts until she shatters the mirror at the end. Twilight Princess remains in my mind as an overall solid title, but one of the weaker entries in this fabulous series. Hmm. Uh, we're moving up the praise stakes Gaio Pinto says I was one of the lucky few who snagged a GameCube copy of Twilight Princess right when it came out and I played it non-stop a few years later I got the Wii version and explored every nook and cranny of that game I get that certain people feel like it's too similar to Ocarina of Time my personal favourite game of all time but I feel like they missed what Twilight Princess added tons and tons of style there's the frantic sprint to Hyrule Castle with a dying Midna and the beautiful Egyptian-inspired Arbiter's Grounds, my favourite dungeon in the series. You befriend the abominable snowman, snowboard with him, and then the entire next dungeon takes place in his house. You get two hookshots and the final boss fight with Ganon is thrilling. And most impressively, Midna's arc is sweet and sad and not many Zelda games get the emotional reaction out of me that Twilight Princess did. I understand that at times the game seems to be trying too hard to be a grown man's ocarina of time, but I think it pulls it off. The tone of the game really worked for me, and I had a blast with it. Uh, this is the email from Colin, two L's, Miller, two L's. Graphical limitations aside, I have fond memories of my original playthrough, and while revisiting the Wii U version of this entry, the game's standouts such as its characters and story have lost none of their potency. In particular, its portrayal of series namesake Princess Zelda was refreshing. When Nintendo released concept art of her brandishing a badass rapier, I nearly welled up. She looked like everything I always thought that Princess Zelda was meant to be, and coming off of her strong portrayal in Wind Waker, I was ready for more. Rather like the Grecian figure Antigone, she feels emotionally deep, and her lack of agency further fuels her torment. In my opinion, this is the most well-told Zelda story. Overall, the cutscenes are cinematic and well-paced, and the scene depicting Link's potential descent into Triforce temptation being of particular merit. 
we forgot to mention that weird section, yes, where he has no irises and pupils. The beginning can drag, but because the game takes time connecting Link to his hometown and subsequent friends, the predicament that inevitably endangers them feels authentically foreboding. As the plot thickens, you revisit several towns and civilizations. Seeing how the people you've met change through either misery or happiness elevates the gaming experience because the inhabitants end up feeling like so much more than soulless NPCs repeating dialogue over and over. That being said, so much emphasis was put on making things realistic that I can see where a few flakes of the fun can taste watered down. In terms of comparing the game's visuals to Wind Waker, the Switch feels like being served a well-made strawberry shortcake when you know a well-made chocolate sundae is already sitting on the cart. (laughs) Both of them taste good, but only one of them oozes about and gets you messy and gives you an emotional feeling in addition to the accompanying fine taste. You can't blame the shortcake... (laughs) it's not a chocolate sundae it wasn't trying to be and chocolate sundaes would be dull if served all the time also worth noting is that this game takes itself seriously some might argue that it goes too far in this direction though i personally enjoy darker fairy tales moreover there's no real justification for why link turns into a wolf i love werewolves as much as the next guy but it just doesn't make much sense The design of the Twilight Princess looked super eerie and imaginative, and we needed a way to enter that cerebral world, I suppose. Talking of Link, sit this version of him next to the version of Link from Wind Waker. The newer model may seem more awesome, but his emotional range is plywood in comparison to his predecessor. Sort of feels like the animators dumped their true love because someone hotter came along. The gameplay in each dungeon was satisfying, and I will go on record as saying that I think these are collectively the best in Zelda history, apart from possibly the N64 Zeldas. The items you find are pretty much the greatest too. Best boomerang? Sure. Cool spinner thing? Yes. Chain chomp with no face? Hell yeah. Certainly no accessory though is Midna. She absolutely steals the show and has an amazing orchestra follow her at every turn. The music of Kakariko is sadder than usual, echoing the loss of grander times. Most overworld collections are tonally distant and the Ordon village theme holds melancholy over your head like a loaded pistol. These were all creative choices, so I don't think you can logically slight them for passivity. I find the game enduring and precious, and I don't care that it isn't self-aware of some things that make it silly. I love the story, I love the bug-catching shtick, I love Zantman, and I love riding Link's horsey. I love you always, Zelda. Okay, the slightly deranged ramblings of emailer Colin. Keep them coming with your extended food metaphors. Andrew Brown says, As I have played along with the podcast, I've noticed that my favourite Zeldas have been those permeated by a theme, resulting in a cohesive experience where game design and narrative events feed into and enhance one another. Perhaps this is why, upon revisiting Twilight Princess back in March with the HD re-release, I came away much more impressed than my previous experiences during the heyday of the Wii. I never disliked it, but thought it too derivative of Ocarina of Time, an aesthetic and game design overreach to please quote-unquote fans after the non-controversy over Wind Waker's cell-shaded style. Ten years removed from Twilight Princess's launch, and with a much less sentimental appraisal of Ocarina of Time, I now recognise it has its own particular strengths and weaknesses, rather than being merely a retread. When Ryan and I were putting together the Zelda Sound of Play special, I believe it was our selection from Twilight Princess which required the least deliberation. Midna's Lament, a mournful piano piece which encapsulates the mood of the entire game. Hylians consumed by twilight, carrying in fear at invisible shadows, Rallis on the verge of death, watched over by the spirit of his mother, the remaining sages standing guard over the shattered mirror, haunted by the fractured pedestal of their fallen brother. 
Yetto and Yetta, living in marital bliss in the ruins of the wrecked, cursed mansion, the wretched Twilight, or is it Twily, twisted into the howling shadow beasts, and Princess Zelda, resplendent in funerary garb, standing vigil in a tower over her fallen, falling kingdom, the entire world exudes an aura of sadness that seems to bleed into its earth, repainting the vibrant Hyrule with a suffocating palette, rescoring the exuberant bombast with discordant tones and muted laments. Even when Link overcomes his struggles and puts down evil yet again, his triumph is bittersweet as Midna departs Hyrule, shattering the mirror behind her. Ocarina of Time is dark for darkness sake. In Twilight Princess, the darkness is a result of the sadness that permeates its entirety. Inescapable. I don't mean to gush about Twilight Princess. It is not without its fault. Wolf Link gets a starring role in the first act, but is on the whole a neglected mechanic. Many of Link's items and abilities, in fact, are barely used outside of the dungeons or set pieces which introduce them, a possible sign that the game was assembled piecemeal by leftover ideas from older Zeldas. We know for certain that this is the case with the Forest Temple, at least. An initial glacial pace and excessive hand-holding makes the first several hours a bore to series veterans, but it's worth the price for its mournful atmosphere, its series-scaling dungeon design and the deep and complex Midna character. Next up, we have another new contributor, inspired by Twilight Princess, East McDuck. This was the second Zelda game I played to completion, the first one being Wind Waker. My brother and I had split the cost of a Wii, and I picked up Twilight Princess for it when it was released. I know some of the long-time followers of the series didn't care for this one as much as previous iterations, but the dark, melancholy atmosphere really resonated with me. I've always had a taste for oddities and things of a darker nature and this game actually took me a little by surprise when it turned out as dark as it did. I personally enjoyed using the Wii controllers. This was another complaint among some people who played it, but it frankly made it more immersive for me. I was actually disappointed when I found out that Twilight Princess HD would not support the Wii controllers and would be more like the GameCube version. I got over it though because it was almost like playing a new game being a mirror image of the Wii version, plus it was nice to use the Wii U tablet to manage my inventory and act as a minimap. The game itself wasn't exactly what I would call perfection but it came fairly close for me. My main complaint was how long it takes to finally get out of Ordon Village and into the game. The beginning parts of the game were unnecessarily drawn out and tedious. The overworld could have used some attention as far as the flora and fauna goes but the scale of it felt massive and satisfying to traverse and still does for the most part. I would have to say that this is my favourite story in the Zelda series. The characters, environments and how everything felt so organic and like it belonged really made for a great experience. I never once felt completely lost. A couple of the dungeons threw me for a loop, but I was counting on that. I did feel like it helped me a little too much at times, but there were also some instances where I wished for more help. Namely the jousting match on the bridge with King Bulblin. I seem to remember him... I seem to remember getting frustrated and turning the game off the first time I fought him. Still, I wouldn't have the game any other way. And finally, from Jakob G42, we always like to end with a sentimental tale if possible. Jakob says, not only was Twilight Princess the first Zelda I ever played, it was in many ways the first game I ever played. With wary parents and no older siblings, video games were something that, for large amounts of my childhood, I could only experience in brief segments at friends' houses. I was always captivated by them and tried to get the same feeling from free online flash games, but it wasn't until I got a Wii that I was allowed to dive headfirst into one. And my god, what an experience to have that first game be Twilight Princess. Having essentially nothing to compare it to, none of the commonly referenced flaws, long opening, repetitive wolf sections, stood out to me, 
Instead, I got an experience that's probably pretty emotionally close to any kid's first Zelda experience. The world seemed unimaginably huge and the majesty of some of the creatures and music were jaw-dropping to my young self. Even now, I remember the bosses as some of the most thrilling experiences of my gaming career. Although I remember little about the actual path of the story, each set piece is planted firmly in my memory. The battle of the bridge, firing out of a cannon to a flying city, that desperate ride with Midna through the rain, even the locations themselves. Lake, uh, like Lake Hylia and Kakariko Village, I remember as almost impossibly beautiful. I'm viewing this through the lens of nostalgia. Of course I am. In many ways, the world of the game now seems muted and empty, even compared to earlier Zeldas. But that's not what I think of when I think of the Twilight Princess. I think of me, early on Saturday morning, in utter awe of a game that could make me feel so, so much at a lonely wolf howling at Hyrule Castle. Even now watching it, I get the same feeling I imagine many do when watching the Ocarina intro or listening to the title music of the original game. Although not my favourite game, in terms of forming who I am today, Twilight Princess is undoubtedly one of the most important games I'll ever play. Thank you one and all as ever, and also thank you to our three word reviewers. At Kane Rince is the Twitter address to follow. Sam Watts says, stunted original concept. The King Rocker says, brown scale is bad. Will Archer says, needs better lighting. Zeke Peter, very slow start. Angry Zeus Gaming says, Bug Collection Simulator. Scary Chips says, Spiders? No thanks. I agree. No, I agree. You got that one. <laughs> Gaio Pinto says, What? Two hookshots? Jacob, Zelda grows up. Andrew Brown says, Morose, Mournful, Magnificent. Thank you, one and all. So, brief conclusions. Let's start with Ryan. It's really hard for me to form a solid opinion one way or the other because there's a lot in it that I really love. I, I love the uh, the direction and the cutscenes, as I mentioned before. I love the character design. I love the aesthetic design of this world. It holds together really well. Um, but I didn't really find myself having all that much fun playing it. Uh, it it's not one that I, I think enjoyed but like i like everything that went into it and so i'm having a really hard time kind of stitching those feelings together <laughs> um yeah i and again like i i love the uh the design of zant and everything and uh but there's a lot in there also that felt like it wasn't working towards the uh towards the greater picture of what this game wanted to be. In a lot of ways, it was very clear that this game was trying to hark back to Ocarina of Time. Um, I, I think in particular, the song segments, um, howling, the, the howling segments felt really uh, kind of underutilized, like a holdover from uh, something that they felt obliged to include rather than something that needed to exist as they only kind of go on to summon a uh, a wolf into the game world rather than performing any like really useful function. Um, but, uh, you know, apart from all of that, like there's, uh, there is a lot of really strong world design. Um, I think if anything, and this is the stupidest thing I could possibly complain about, but the world design and the, uh, the, the, texturing on the walls and the way that the castles were laid out and everything made it feel like I was playing Dark Souls. And so the kind of archaic battle systems, which, you know, this was many, many years old. And so we hadn't really gotten to the point where the combat would have been two Dark Souls levels yet. But it, uh, I don't know, I think it just amplified how 
it just kind of substandard the uh, the combat feels by today's standards. And so maybe, you know, maybe I would have stronger memories if I played it, uh, which I did play it back then. But, uh, you know, maybe if I again played it for the first time back then, if that sentence makes any sense. But regardless, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think this one just passes me by, can't put my finger on it. But uh, there's a lot of really magnificent stuff in it. I've just loved to, I would love to love it as much as I love its components a little bit more. Leah, how about you? Did you like it more than Ryan did? I, I did. I, this is this is not my favorite Zelda, um, but I think that I actually kind of had the inverse reaction. I enjoyed it a lot more this time around than I remember liking it the first time that I played it. Um, mm. I, I, I didn't dislike Twilight Princess the first time that I played it, but I had a lot of issues. Um, it it didn't feel very good to me. Um, I, I did like the style, and I did like playing it, but I, as I said, particularly with the motion controls, it just it didn't feel great to me. Um, so it, it has been a long time since the last time that I played it, but playing this time around with a lot of those impediments kind of taken out, I... I thought that it looked great. I, I thought that it felt a lot better. Um, I, I didn't I didn't like some of the overall style as much as I did say Wind Waker, but I also thought that I had a really good time and I thought a lot of the dungeons and how they were designed and I, I the um, the new additions in the way of items were interesting, even if maybe they weren't used to their full potential. Um, so yeah, I, I actually did uh, enjoy Twilight Princess a fair amount, and um, I I don't know that I would recommend it to anybody who as their first Zelda, perhaps. But um, if if you're interested in these kinds of games, I I, I think that um, it's a pretty good one to go for. Um, and again, I don't know if I would have felt differently if I had played something like Okami first. I, I didn't play Okami until it came out after, until it came out on the Wii, which I believe was after. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I I think it's good. I liked it. Um, I enjoyed myself, uh, and um, I, I think it's, it's worth playing. Thanks, Leah. I'm extremely fond of The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Uh, I thought when I first played it ten years ago on the GameCube um, that it was pretty magical um i well i you know i i read uh these um you know this correspondence and and elsewhere as well you know the the sort of the criticisms aimed at it are familiar and um you know they they make a certain amount of sense to me but uh they none of none of the things that people don't seem to like about this game were things that bothered me um i do consider uh this game in many ways to be the sort of the natural next step the next refinement for the 3d zelda series um there's a lot of stuff you know I, I there's a lot of stuff i really liked about wind waker but this to me was something uh that grabbed me more because i wanted to go get back on the land and um you know do some of that stuff that that i'd been able to do or at least envisage from the the n64 uh 3d zeldas um but perhaps you know with with more high resolution graphics and and uh more things to see and do and um 
and yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you know, yeah, some of the some of the things like the the uh, the tears of light sections, um, yeah, they they were a little irksome the first time around. But overall, you know, both times I played through this game, I've played like forty hours, and um, probably the majority of that time, or at least a good chunk of it has been spent in the nine dungeons which i think are consistently superb um i don't really get the the issues with items being underused because i think every game has every zelda game has that sort of sort of imbalance where some items are used more than others some of them some of them are mainly used in the dungeon you find them and and sell them again and that sort of thing and actually you know, I, I did find that a lot of these items were recurring as, as the game went on. So um, for me, it really comes down to, you know, how much how much feeling I got out of it. And I, and I did get for a Zelda game, I got an awful lot of, of atmosphere and a sense of place and a sense of magic. And perhaps it doesn't quite have the quirkiness of or the genuine eeriness of, of Majora's Mask or uh, some of the others in the series, particularly Majora's Mask, um, but it has an atmosphere all of its own, and and um, yeah, and really my my joy is kind of summed up in that Yeto and Yeta sequence, which is I think is just glorious and um, worth playing up to that point just to get there and see that again, and um, yeah, just I I just had as much fun playing through this one in HD as I've had playing any of the Zeldas that we've been through back to the series so far so full thumbs up from me let's conclude with Josh then um, I feel very similarly to you Leon so I won't repeat what you just said but I, I will emphasise that you know for me this was my first Zelda so a lot of the criticisms are kind of null and void for me just because all you know a lot of the things that were familiar and um retreads for a lot of a lot of fans that was the first time i experienced them and so i associate those moments of um uh you know those moments and those mechanics that people will say hey that's that Ocarina of Time did that first. I associate those moments with Twilight Princess. So I don't feel that way about the game at all, even after revisiting Ocarina of Time. And, you know, I I, I wasn't a, a, as huge a fan of Ocarina of Time as um, a lot of people um, are. And um, ultimately, I actually feel that Twilight Princess, for me, is the... Uh, is a more successful game, at least in my eyes. Um, I think... As you say, Leon, the temples are great. The the uh, the the um, Snow Peak ruins is great. But for me, the the big success of uh, Twilight Princess is Midna. I think Midna is easily one of my favourite characters in the series. Um, she has a really strong arc, and um, I think more than any other side character in the game, I genuinely was a little bit tearful when you have to say goodbye to her because I think. The game does such a you know successful job of building that relationship between you and Midna, and um, I think the art direction throughout the game, um, despite what um, a lot of people have um, said, I, I do think it's really strong. Ultimately, I, I think games like Wind Waker and Majora's Mask uh, are more consistently great. I think the the opening of uh, Twilight Princess, especially on this this playthrough, is is a bit laborious and and a bit stop and start. But once 
this game gets going. It has some of the strongest sections of the entire series for me. Um, I really love Twilight Princess. Thanks, one and all. Well, who'd have thought it? We're getting rid of Ryan, and he's the one who enjoyed Twilight Princess the least. <laughs> he's off to Nintendo with that. Uh, yeah, just remains for me, Leon, to thank Josh, Leah, and for the last time, at least for the meantime, but not on Sound of Play. You'll still be on Sound of Play, but for Kane yes. Rinse, thank you, Ryan. And uh, we'll speak soon, no doubt. Uh, and to tell you that next time, in issue 245... We test our sanity in time to survive Halloween's horror in our Amnesia, the Dark Descent issue.